Good day, everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University horticulture agent Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Lisa Mason, CSU horticultural agent of Arapahoe County. Now let's get to the heart of it, where we're going to discuss pollinator habitat. Hello, Lisa, how are you doing? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm good, I'm so glad you can join me today. Me too. So let's tell the folks about pollinator habitat. Can you describe a habitat and what it entails? Absolutely. So habitat consists of things that that every animal and human needs. So food, water, shelter, and space. And one of the silver linings of pollinator conservation is that everybody can provide a, a little bit of habitat and pollinators can use that. So it doesn't matter how big or small, um, like planting flowers, uh, pollinators will, will find them. So let's dive into, um, let's start with food. So the most important thing when providing food for pollinators is providing a, a variety of blooming flowers. So each different plant has a different nutritional profile. So really providing that diversity is, is a great thing to do. And then you'll want flowers that bloom all season long. So from the very early spring, all the way into the, to the late fall, um, because pollinators are going to be active, um, all season long. You'll also want to consider avoiding double flowers. Now, double flowers are big, beautiful flowers that horticulturalists have propagated uh, to, to have a longer bloom time um, and have extra petals. So during that propagation process, um, they have essentially bred out the plant reproductive parts of the flower. So, so the result is a big, beautiful, long-lasting flower but a flower that is sterile and does not provide resources for pollinators. So when you're shopping for garden plants, um, consider looking for those plant reproductive parts. Look and see which flowers the bees are visiting at the, at the garden store um, can, can be a great idea. And remember, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So you can absolutely keep, you know, some of your double flowers, but maybe consider adding some pollinator friendly flowers in the mix. And another great, well, there's a couple great options for, for plants. Um, one of that, one of those is native plants. Um, native plants, uh, pollinators have evolved and depend on them. They're, they provide great resources. So native plants are always a, an excellent option, um, especially if you're looking for, for a low water garden. Um, and plant select uh, is a, is a, as an organization between Colorado State University and the Denver Botanic Gardens, um, they specifically propagate plants to grow well in the Rocky Mountain climate. Um, many of their plants are also pollinator friendly um, and are, are excellent options. Uh, my personal favorite is moon carrot, um, which is a very unique looking plant. Um, it's got these big white uh, flower heads. Oh, I have so many different species of bees, wasps, and flies. It's it's amazing to watch. So that's um that talks about their their food, their food source. Let's talk about shelter. So different pollinators are going to need different um different things for shelter. So let's talk about bees. 
Um, most of our bees are solitary nesting bees, which means they nest underground or in cavities. About 70% of our solitary bees nest in the ground and the other 30% nest in cavities, which consists of, um, pre-existing tunnels, perhaps in a dead log, um, perhaps in, you know, a nook and cranny in, you know, your backyard infrastructure anything like that. And that includes um, human-made bee hotels as well. So providing bare soil areas can, can go a long way for ground nesting bees, especially if it's in a sunny area. Um, bees generally don't dig through mulch and, and they certainly don't dig through weed fabric. So keep that in mind, uh, in your landscape. Um, but mulch, you know, mulch offers many benefits to, to the landscape. So certainly, um, add mulch to the landscape, but maybe consider leaving some sunny areas of bare soil for those ground nesting bees. And consider, you know, turf grass can offer a variety of benefits to, to the landscape. So especially if you've, if you've got kids or dogs, but if you look at your, your landscape and you've got some areas of turf that you're not actively using, um, maybe the irrigation isn't watering it very well, or, you know, it's just this extra turf that, that you may not need. Consider maybe taking that out and adding in some low water perennials. So all those things can, can provide shelter. Now, different pollinators are going to need different things for shelter. So for instance, butterflies need sheltered areas. They love the open sunny areas, but they also need some shelter. So having different levels in your yard. So you've got your ground level perennials, maybe you have some shrubs and then you have some trees. So creating that, that diversity of levels, um, can actually benefit butterflies and hummingbirds. Um, uh, conifer trees are, are a great place for shelter for, for butterflies and hummingbirds. And then like all animals, um, insects included, they need a water source. Um, many times they, they'll find, you know, water from your irrigation system. Um, but you can also provide shallow water dishes. Um, bird baths are a great example. Um, consider adding maybe some shallow rocks to a dish and that provides a landing place for, for bees and other insects to drink water out of. And then the other big thing is space. You know, everybody, um, insects included, they just need that habitat spaces or those habitat spaces. So we've got to think creatively about where we can put pollinator habitats in areas that we're, you know, we're not actively using that don't have a purpose. Let's add some flowers and, and leave some bare soil areas um, for those pollinators. Well, that's, that's a lot to digest. And in, in terms of diversity, I, I love that you talked about, you know, the trees, the perennials and the ground covers, because we don't normally think that that every different species, whether it's a bird or an insect, has its own niche at a particular level. And so thinking about diversity, not only in the different types of flowers we bring to the garden, but the levels of of you know where they would best fit in for their home and absolutely uh, and I live out in the country and I've been getting rid of a lot of the excess turf that I don't want and keeping some of the soil bare and adding in some mulch in other places where it's needed and putting the plant select and the native plants 
but that that's quite it's quite a process and and uh, though I have plants like uh, Asclepias tuberosa, which bring in a lot of oh, pollinators, yes. I also have a perennial helianthus. We have a garden that we put in at the visitor center here in Julesburg. It's the for the tourists that come through, and we put a pollinator garden in, and we used uh, helianthus lemon queen, ah. and so we tried it, even though it's a cultivar. And that's a question I was going to ask you. Do they have particular preference preferences uh, between a cultivar or a native? Because when we put that lemon queen in, there was massive amounts of different varieties of pollinators that came. That's an excellent question and a question we don't fully understand either. Um, you know, I think that the best um, guideline to go by right now is if the pollinators are visiting the flower, it must be offering be offering something great for them. And I, I think that's a good guideline to go for, off of. Um, there is a lot of research going on to understand how do these cultivars or these nativars, um, how are, do they differ from, from a native plant, for instance? Uh, so, you know, while we, while researchers figure that out, I think right now the best guideline is if they're visiting the plants, there must be something good for them. Absolutely. Observation is sometimes your best guide. Absolutely. Um, you know, it leads us to the next thing to look at. So I know you mentioned a little bit about uh, hummingbirds and butterflies. So what else do hummingbirds need or require that's different from butterflies for a habitat? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so for, for hummingbirds, you know, ma many people add hummingbird feeders and, and that's great. Um, but you know, a hummingbird feeder, it, you know, is, is really more for human enjoyment than long-term benefits for the hummingbirds because hummingbirds, not only do they need nectar, but most, you know, a, a large portion of their diet is actually insects. So there's a couple things that you can do that would sustain hummingbirds, you know, long-term in your landscape. Um, the first one is you can provide um, long red tubular flowers that offer nectar um, that hummingbirds can visit. So um, there's some great native plants. Um, I know um, there's some hyssops that are, that are excellent, um, providing you know, especially native plants that support, um, that provide nectar to hummingbirds. But the other thing is since they feed on insects, um, you can add nectar plants to your garden that attract a wide variety of insects, um, so that the hummingbirds have that, that protein source. So those generally are, are some longer term ideas, uh, that can, are really better off for, for hummingbirds. You know, if you enjoy your hummingbird feeder, absolutely use it, but maybe consider adding in um, some nectar plants uh, for them as well. And then like we talked about, you know, having those different levels in the garden can go a long way to, to providing habitat for them. Now that's different than let's say butterflies and moths. So if you want to attract butterflies and moths to your garden, the absolute best thing you can do is plant caterpillar host plants. So, so butterflies, we have about 250 species moths. We have about a thousand species of moths, um, in Colorado. 
So let, let's talk about a couple of examples. Uh, the two-tailed swallowtail. We have, um, it's one of the big yellow butterflies that we see flying around. Their host plants are ash trees, choke cherries, and hop trees. So if you all might know, I'm with Emerald Ash Borer. Um, slowly moving through Colorado, uh, eventually, you know, they're, they're not going to have those ash tree hosts. So maybe if you're looking for, for a shrub, consider choke cherry. Uh, not only is that a host plant for the two-tailed swallowtail, but the, the berries from that, um, are a great source of food for birds too. So, um, and you know, choke cherry does, uh, sucker a lot. So, so it does require some maintenance, um, but there are some, some sucker resistant varieties as well. Uh, painted ladies, they host on thistles and sunflowers and, and a few other plants. Monarch butterflies, we all know, um, host on milkweed plants. Uh, and the, the last example I want to share is the, the variegated fritillary. They actually host on pansy plants. Uh, so there's some native plants that they host on, you know, in the wild, but in an urban setting when homeowners purchase that, you know, they spend a lot of money on their pansies. Um, not, you know, some homeowners aren't too happy when they're, they're being munched on by caterpillars. So one year I had a, a client that sent me a photo and, and I knew instantly what they were. And he was kind enough to, he picked all the caterpillars off and brought them to the extension office. So I went and bought them some pansies and, and reared them, uh, till they were adult butterflies. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's good. That's really good. It was fun. <laughs> so with, with all of attracting hummingbirds and butterflies, what about bees? How can I attract more bees to my garden? Is it similar to just bringing in more flowers or do they need something more specific? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, so when we think about all pollinators, there, there's a term, it's called pollinator syndromes. And those are basic characteristics that uh, plants have that attract their pollinators. So for instance, we talked about hummingbirds um, visiting red long tubular flowers. Um, Butterflies are attracted to flowers that are brightly colored and have a landing platform for them. Bees are generally attracted to flowers that are white, yellow, blue, violets, and, and bees can actually see light on the, the UV light spectrum. So they, um, they're very much attracted to, to those, those types of colors. Um, some bees like a place where they can crawl in to, to the flower to, to get the pollen and nectar. So think about like Rocky Mountain penstemon or any penstemon flowers, you know, you'll see small bees crawling in. Um, other bees will visit flowers where they have um, a place to land. Um, bees have a variety of, of tongue lengths too. So some bees will go to flowers um, that are that are shorter and other bees with longer tongues will be able to visit flowers that are longer. Um, but really looking at, you know, the, the colors um, can be a, a great start to attracting uh, more bees in your landscape. Very interesting. All very interesting. Made some great, great information out there for folks. So with building all this habitat around my house, does the risk in 
increase of getting stung by planting more pollinator plants? That's a very common question. And, and the short answer is no, no, it really doesn't increase the risk of getting stung. And that's because when we look at all insect stings, 90%, over 90% of all insect stings are actually from the Western yellow jacket. Um, that is considered often, it's a, it's a native insect, but it's often um, a nuisance insect. Um, and the reason why is because it's a scavenger and it's very attracted to human food sources. Normally it would feed on carrion. So, so dead things They're you know, really they're the ecosystem cleanup crew. But uh, with, with human food sources like trash cans and picnics, barbecues, um, the, the yellow jackets are very attracted to, to those food sources. Um, sometimes they, they can be a little more aggressive too, especially if there's, um, you know, people are swatting at them and, and that increases the risk of getting stung. But when we think about pollinator habitats, so yellow jackets typically don't visit pollinator flowers, friendly flowers because they feed on a different source of food. So the, the, the stinging insects that might visit pollinator friendly flowers would be, um, honeybees, um, even, even paper wasps, but both of those insects, while they can sting when they're visiting flowers, it's, um, they're very focused on those flowers. And so unless you really provoke them or accidentally step on one, um, you're, you're unlikely to get stung while they're visiting flowers. And then when you think about all the, the native solitary bees and, and even, you know, in some cases, solitary wasps. So those insects, they don't, they aren't social insects, they're solitary. So they don't have a, a colony or a nest, um, you know, a colony to, to defend. So while the females can sting, it's pretty difficult to get stung by a solitary bee or, or even a solitary wasp. Um, they really just do their own thing and, and they don't, really care about people at all. So when you add pollinator friendly flowers to the landscape, the the insects visiting those flowers are are typically very low risk um, for stings. But then, you know, it's it's still important to be mindful. So for instance, if you know you're allergic to stings and, and it makes you uncomfortable, maybe consider planting pollinator friendly plants away from, from human activity. Um, th things like that. So so important to be mindful of, but overall the risk does not uh, substantially increase. Well, that's good to know. And the next time I see uh, a Western yellow jacket, I'm going to think of ecosystem cleanup crew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've given people a lot of information today and a lot to think about. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining me. And a thank you to the audience for listening. Tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter on another horticultural topic. 